I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. I am delighted to be hosting a conversation with Dr. Jennifer Butte. I met Jen, I think, about 13 years ago, 12 or 13 years-ish, and it's been meaningful to follow her work since then. Jen is now an associate professor at IUPUI. Her work explores how people communicate about health challenges in everyday mundane talk. She's particularly interested in understudied health contexts, and today we're talking to her about her research and advocacy related to food allergies. For those of you who've been following us this season, due to COVID-19, you know we are podcasting from our home spaces. So Adam Rich, our sound producer and sound genius, and I are in Athens, and Jen is in Indianapolis. And because we're at home, We just might be joined by dogs, kids, teenagers. So if our pups, uh, Cleo and Jasper, join us, don't be alarmed. We're just keeping it real for you here at Defining Moments. Jen, thanks so much for um, taking time to be with us today and, and talk to us about your work. Thank you, Lynn. It's truly my pleasure to have this conversation with you. So... I'm going to say this out loud for you. (laughs) Over the past 20 years, your work has focused on interpersonal and health communication. 20 years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Time slows down for none of us. Long days, short years. But in those two decades, you have engaged profoundly important questions that rest at the heart of how we communicate in our relationships and how we communicate around health challenges. And occasionally, your professional pursuits and your personal experiences collide. And on occasion, you offer readers a glimpse into the roots of of those collisions. In an article that we're talking about today that was published in Health Communication, you bring us into your recent work on how families communicate about food allergies. You poignantly discuss how your lived experiences gave rise to your research and and ultimately brought you into the realm of public advocacy. For listeners who haven't read your piece, I'm hoping you can start by sharing the story that you write about. You write about your son, Jack, who's now 10, and your family's initial experiences with food allergies. You start the story like this. The trauma, the confusion, the anxiety, it comes back to me in flashes, in bits and pieces. And you go on to bring those bits and pieces together. I'm, I'm hoping you'll be willing to share some of that with our listeners. 
Absolutely. And you're right that my personal and professional pursuits have collided in ways that were unexpected for me and ultimately have been fruitful for me. But I I think that my work surrounding food allergy feels more personal than anything I've ever done because it it does involve my child. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, when Jack was three, almost four, he had his first anaphylactic reaction to a peanut that he found at his grandmother's house. My mother-in-law was babysitting for him at the time, so neither my husband Brandon nor I were present to witness that reaction. And I very vividly recall my husband calling me from the car after he had picked Jack up at the end of a work day and telling me that Jack had gotten sick after eating a peanut. And I knew immediately what that meant, that getting sick sounds somewhat innocuous, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I knew that that meant that he had an allergy. And so after getting as much detail as I could from Brandon, so by this point I'm hearing what happened sort of third hand, I called the on-call pediatrician because it was after hours at our pediatrician's office. And looking back, I got really bad advice about what to do. Uh, We were told to give Jack Benadryl when he came home and to keep an eye on him. What I have since learned, and so much of my story about Jack's first reactions has to do with what I know now, (laughs) which I think is not uncommon when people are encountering a new health challenge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what I know now is that Benadryl would not have done anything for him in that situation. Um, It's not unheard of for people to have what's called a biphasic reaction, which is to have a second onset of symptoms after the initial onset. And so really... Mm -hmm. We should have taken Jack to an emergency room and he should have been monitored. Um, Our next step was to get testing done. And so we did that first through a pediatrician's office. I vividly remember sitting actually exactly where I'm sitting right now, recording this podcast and answering a phone call from her after Jack had a panel of blood work done. And I remember her telling me that Jack had very significant food allergies and that he was allergic to everything he had been tested for. That included probably 10 or more foods. Mm -hmm. It included not only peanut, which we knew he had had a, a reaction to, but it included wheat and soy and milk and corn and things that Jack was eating every day. So it didn't make any sense to me that he had allergies to these foods. And only through my own research did I discover that the type of testing that was ordered, which is standard in in some doctor's offices, was so inaccurate that it has a 50% false positive rate. So it was quite likely that Jack was absolutely not allergic to everything on the panel. And we're fortunate that we live in an area where we had access to an allergist and eventually were able to get clarity on what he is and is not allergic to. But I think the real turning point for me, and Brandon, my husband, may agree with this, was the second time Jack had a a reaction. He was at home with us that time. And so I think 
we had this maybe naive optimism that maybe his reaction to the peanut was maybe not a true allergic reaction. There was this glimmer of hope that maybe he had kind of choked a little bit and that had made him sick um, because we didn't witness that reaction. But mm-hmm. Jack and I had baked a cake mix at home. He was four at the time. We decided to eat some of the cake after dinner. And as soon as he put it in his mouth, like a microsecond later, he said, my mouth hurts. And then Mm. his whole body was red with hives. And then he was vomiting. Um, And so we knew, we saw it with our own eyes, Mm -hmm. that the the glimmer of hope was gone. Um, This is also a case where looking back, we did not handle his reaction appropriately. We should have given him epinephrine and called 911. But we didn't because we didn't know that's what we were supposed to do. Mm. Um, we also had fed him this cake mix without understanding the way labeling for food allergies works. And so even though I had some initial confusion with our pediatrician, I realized after this reaction that we knew nothing about what we were doing and Mm. we were going to have to start educating ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that initial part of your journey was, was really characterized by some bad advice that you got early on note to listeners, Benadryl (laughs) is not the same um, as an EpiPen. Um, but also lots of inaccurate information along the way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's not uncommon based on my research for um, allergy testing to be misinterpreted, especially when that testing is not administered and interpreted by a board-certified allergist. So in, in casual conversation with some of the allergists I've had the chance to meet, Some people feel like people are avoiding more foods than they really need to because of the inaccuracy of the testing. Mm. And the Benadryl epinephrine debate and confusion is ongoing. Mm. Um, Benadryl can help if you have something like hives, but it does not stop anaphylaxis. I should also add a little note here that I am not a physician, (laughs) but (laughs) the the prevailing science is that uh, only epinephrine stops the progression of an anaphylactic reaction, and Benadryl does not do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You are not a pediatrician, but you are a mom, Jen, and you're a mom who knows your son and knows his body and his temperament and how he typically reacts. And, and that expertise is, is important alongside the expertise of the allergist and the other care providers in your network. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true for all allergy parents. Yeah. One, one thing that you said which has never really been a part of my life because I've not had to worry about it. Um, and, and it's in part why I'm having this conversation 
to elevate your experiences and the experiences of other people in similar positions so that we're all more aware. I've never had to consider whether uh, the boxes of, of food that I pick up at, at the store have correct labeling, right? For cross contact when, when those are produced, right? That's something that I've never had to think about. And it seems like it's a part of your everyday world. It absolutely is for us. Um, I, I remember the first few times I grocery shopped after Jack's allergic reactions and just noticing how many things in the store I did not feel comfortable buying anymore, especially after that second reaction when we realized how uneducated we were about making sense of labels. It's also a difficult problem to tackle because the labeling laws and guidelines themselves are very confusing. And Mm. there's a lot of misunderstanding among allergists and among people coping with food allergies about what labels mean. So manufacturers are required to label for what we refer to as the top eight allergens. And those labels have to be clear enough that a consumer can make sense of them. So many of our listeners have probably seen a box that says something like contains egg at the bottom of a list of ingredients. But that listing of egg can also just be included in the little paragraph listing the ingredients. It doesn't necessarily have to be on a separate line. So that in and of itself is a little confusing. What has been even trickier for our family to learn to navigate is what is called precautionary allergen labeling or PAL. Those are labels that consumers may have also encountered that say something along the lines of, this product is manufactured in a facility with peanuts or may contain milk. Mm-hmm. or processed in the same facility as soy. Those labels are completely voluntary. Manufacturers are not required to hmm. use those labels for, for cross-contact, which cross-contact means it's possible that a small amount of a potential allergen that is not an actual ingredient has gotten into a manufactured food. Not only are they not required, but the phrasing of those labels is not mandated in any sort of way. Mm. So I have talked to some allergy parents whose allergists have told them, well, your daughter can eat something that's made on the same line as wheat, but not something that says may contain wheat. In reality, there's no discernible difference between those two labels. Mm. They could both mean exactly the same thing. Or they could both mean that this product was made in the same building with wheat. They could Mm -hmm. both mean this product was made on the same manufacturing line with wheat. So it it is not uh, a practice that, in my opinion, is useful to the average consumer. And it Mm -hmm. was a pretty steep learning curve for our family to learn those. And I still have trouble sometimes explaining those precautionary labels to people. 
including your family. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And friends. And you write about that, right? That this is something that impacts not only the immediacy of, of your family, but your extended kin network. Absolutely. And in the interviews I've done with other food allergy parents, that's true not only for me, but for other allergy parents I've talked to. Anything that involves food is going to affect any kind of social event where food is served, especially events with family members. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is where coming full circle to where we started, I see your professional and your personal work intersecting. Because for as long as I've known you, one of the key threads across your work has really been this focus on the communicative management of health conditions, right? How we communicate about Um, in this case, food allergies. Can you talk to us a little bit about kind of your work on the communicative management of well-being, illness, healing um, in general, and and how you're bringing that to bear to make sense of, of these experiences? Absolutely. So as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I've always been interested in the everyday conversations that we have about health and illness and healing. While a lot of health communication work looks at really important contexts like how we talk with our healthcare providers or health communication campaigns, I've always been more drawn to just our more mundane kind of conversations that we have mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. health. And when it comes to the management of food allergies, the way I see that condition being somewhat unique is the bulk of the management of this disease happens within those everyday conversations. So uh, a couple of our fantastic graduate students at IUPUI and I have been working on a data set with qualitative interviews with food allergy parents and asking them about their experiences having those everyday conversations about food allergy. And we ultimately make an argument that this is a form of labor. And that argument did not originate just with this particular study. It comes from previous research looking at what is deemed communication work, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. it can be burdensome, and exhausting and sometimes overwhelming to continually have conversations about a particular health condition, including food allergy. In the case of food allergy, not only is there conversation about the initial diagnosis, what if any treatments might be available to pursue, updates after appointments, but there's also communication that is essential to managing the allergy and and keeping people safe. And so that communication can involve everything from calling ahead at restaurants, talking to wait staff, working with school officials, especially for younger children, 
but also really unfolds in those day-to-day conversations we have with family, friends, neighbors, etc. So those conversations can include trying to explain the way labeling works or being very clear that my child can have this brand of pretzels and that is it. So don't try to read the label. Just feed them the pretzels I gave you. Um, It could be showing the babysitter how to use an epinephrine auto-injector. It could be asking grandma what is in this casserole that she's planning to serve for dinner. And so I always joke that I have an eagle eye for food, that no matter where I am, whether it's in an everyday mundane kind of context or out in public, I feel like I know what everybody around me is eating at all times. And I'm ready Mm -hmm. to ask questions about it if I have to. Mm -hmm. Um, But that can be exhausting. There are some times when you don't feel like calling the restaurant ahead of time. You wish that you could just show up. Um, You don't want to go to the neighborhood barbecue and have to check every single thing that's on the buffet table and figure out who brought what. And so sometimes families find workarounds to try to relieve that communicative burden like just bringing your own food for your child so that you don't have to worry about what's safe and what's not. Mm -hmm. That, of course, comes with its own kind of social consequences. Um, So I I do think that it's a very much uh, a disease context where the communication is essential to the management of the illness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... You described that learning curve, right, to do that communication work as steep for you. Yes. And you are an expert and, and have lived in diverse health contexts where you've studied communication work, yet this curve was steep for you. Absolutely. It was. And you know, I think part of what's going on there is... Food is complicated to talk about. Mm. Um, You know, so when I am asking questions about what's going to be served at a holiday, I'm not only gathering information, but it's possible that my questions are being construed as threatening long-held traditions about what we always have at Christmas dinner, for example. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so food is just tied into a lot of really personal meetings meanings for people that might feel threatened um, if a food is deemed unsafe or even just by asking questions about food. Um, I think the other challenge we as a family have faced that I have seen with other food allergy families is that a significant amount of communication effort goes into legitimating food allergy as a serious health condition. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want you to know that we now have teal pumpkins in October. Oh, yay. I'm so glad to hear that. Because of your effort, right? Oh, good. And the effort of others to help us all understand that we're a better community when we all create conditions in which everyone can be healthy. So while exhausting, know that that your communication work matters. 
also strikes me, Jen, that there might be a parallel in the communication work among families who are living with a diagnosis of diabetes, mm-hmm. where they also have to carefully look at food labels and they have to potentially change routines and rituals of a family in order for that person to thrive. So it might, it might be an interesting um, contextual comparison in terms of the, the type of work that's required. Absolutely. And thank you for the teal pumpkin. Um, (laughs) One thing I try to remind people during teal pumpkin season, which is Halloween, is the teal pumpkin not only helps children who are trick-or-treating with food allergies to let them know that something safe is available, but there are lots of different health conditions, diabetes being one, that require specialized diets. And so if you can have a non-food offering available for trick-or-treaters. You're just making things a little easier and more inclusive for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A riveting example from your article that stood out to me is how you invested $100 in order for one of Jack's classes to make yes. gingerbread houses out of cardboard so yes. that he could participate yeah, you know, this that's a good example of um, how activities involving food are, are ritualized, even in learning contexts like our schools. For the most part, we had really good experiences at Jack's Elementary School. That is not the case for all food allergy parents. Um, speaking of being sort of eagle eye on food, you notice how much food is in schools that Mm -hmm. is not in the school cafeteria, but is used for things like crafts and projects. The gingerbread house being an example of one such situation. When Jack was in second grade, his teacher, who had been teaching for many years, in fact, she just recently retired, had always, every single year, had her students make gingerbread houses during the holidays and this was very important to her and she typically had classroom parents donate the supplies which included graham crackers and frosting and different kinds of candies Um, and so she did kindly approach me about her intention to do this project and was kind enough to seek my advice At the same time, um, she was also very insistent that this was a project that needed to be done. And so my compromise was rather than check every single type of candy that every parent donated and also be there the day that the gingerbread houses were being made in the classroom, um, was to try to demonstrate that there are almost always non-food workarounds for craft type projects. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I am also in a position where I have the time and the financial means to track down cardboard, cardboard gingerbread houses and order them and donate them to the class. Um, and it turned out that, that the kids loved them and then they could decorate them with sequins and glitter and glue and and still have the same kind of fun process without involving food. I fully realize that not every allergy parent can do that or mm-hmm. should necessarily be expected. 
to do that. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I'm always happy to donate to a public school. Um, but that was a situation where I also wanted to kind of make a point that, yeah, this is really important to you as an educator. It's something you've done for a long time, but is there a creative workaround that we can find? Hi folks, this is Lynn breaking in for just a second. I've been talking with Dr. Jennifer Butte, an associate professor at IUPUI, about her work in communication management of food allergies. We've been talking about her own personal experience and how that interfaces with her professional work and her public advocacy. You can read her latest article published in Health Communication, for your convenience, we've placed a link on our Facebook page to that article. Okay, back to the conversation. I appreciate um, your personal reflexivity, both in our conversation and, and in the article, which I hope our listeners will check out. It's freely accessible thanks to our partner, Taylor and Francis, that publishes the journal Health Communication. In both your article and in our conversation, you own your middle-class perspective and that you are able to offset the costs of alternatives that are accessible for everybody. Um, you also are honest about your ability to afford extra EpiPens mm -hmm. right, to have in case of emergencies. There are real financial burdens that are involved with food allergies. There absolutely are. Um, so much so that, that I have changed my own language where I no longer say EpiPen and I say epinephrine auto injector. <laughs> because oh. EpiPen is a brand name, um, and I have some some problems with the price gouging that has happened with EpiPens. Because um, if you look at the cost of epinephrine as a drug, epinephrine is adrenaline. Um, it's a very cheap drug to produce, and so part of what food allergy families are dealing with when it comes to the cost is paying for the auto injector mechanism. Um, there are increasingly some alternatives available, some generics that are slightly less expensive, some programs that allow you to get auto injectors at um, free or reduced cost. Unfortunately, sometimes those programs require people to have commercial insurance to access them. And mm -hmm. so one of the kind of persistent disparities in the food allergy community is not only do some people have higher rates of allergic disease, for example, black children have higher rates of asthma and food allergy than white children, wow. um, but they also are, are less likely to have access to auto injectors or to the recommended number of those injectors. 
Um, those typically come in a two-pack, and the recommendation is to carry two with you at all times because sometimes uh, a patient needs a second dose of epinephrine, and it's also possible that an auto-injector could malfunction. But I've heard plenty of stories of families who are only able to get one pack of auto-injectors, and then they have to split them up. So maybe they leave one at school and one at home, um, mm -hmm. which may work out just fine, and hopefully it will. But it's, it's not the typical recommendation um, for how they're supposed to be available and accessible. Mm -hmm. And that's just one of many examples where we see those kinds of disparities, not just in food allergy, but in allergic disease more broadly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really a double bind when you have Black children who are more likely to experience these and less likely to have access to, um, let me see if I get this right, epinephrine auto-injectors? You did it. Yes. Very good. <laughs> um, so that's really a double bind, and it, it forces us to acknowledge how different markers of difference, like rat race and, and class and and gender, right? All of those um, intersect with our experience and our access to healing resources. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Hmm. So, I think this has been evident thus far in our conversation, but I, I want to drill deeper and and turn our attention to kind of your public advocacy work. And for listeners who haven't read your piece yet, I want to read just a, a quote that lingered with me. In your article, you write, my story called me to public advocacy. I couldn't help but wonder what I could do in a situation that made me feel so oblivious and so entirely powerless. How could I change the landscape of food allergy life? Jen, your public advocacy has taken different forms you just finished, is it a three-year term on the Outcomes Research Advisory Board? Yes. And that's for the Food Allergy Research and Education? Correct. Okay. Um, and this is the largest private funder of food allergy research in the U.S. Is that right? It is, yes. Okay. What did your work look like on the ground? Yeah, it, that was one of the best personal and professional experiences I've had in recent years to have the privilege of being on that board. So Food Allergy Research and Education, also known as FAIR, had a grant from the Patient-Centered Research Outcomes Institute to engage a group of stakeholders in the development of a patient-centered research agenda for food allergy. And so I got to work with a group of between 40 and 50 folks from across the country, some of whom were also food allergy parents like me. Some were researchers, many of them doing basic science in the lab, working on potential therapies or improved diagnostic for food allergies. Some of them were school nurses, adult food allergy patients, allergists, so really a, a wide range of experiences on this board 
I wore sort of dual hats in that I was coming to the board, both from the perspective of a food allergy parent, but also from the perspective of a health communication scholar. And so we met virtually and in person over the course of about a year in order to brainstorm and recommend what we thought should be research priorities for scientists studying food allergy. One of the outcomes of that work was a call for increasing attention on the psychosocial aspects of food allergy, which doing what I do is near and dear to my heart. Uh, But there were also other recommendations that some of the scientists we presented our work to were somewhat surprised by. For instance, many people on the board were interested in the development of different forms of epinephrine administration. Mm -hmm. Um, The current auto-injectors administer epinephrine through a needle, and that is a barrier to people using epinephrine quickly. When someone's having anaphylaxis, a matter of seconds can make a difference in the progression of a reaction, so it's really important to administer the auto-injector quickly, but we have pretty good evidence to suggest that there's a lot of fear Mm. in giving an an auto-injector. And so we encourage scientists to explore other ways of administering epinephrine. Mm -hmm. So there were a, a range of recommendations that we were able to present to some of the scientists funded by FAIR who were on the front lines of developing therapies and diagnostics for food allergy. But we were also able to make a push for considering greater access to social services and thinking about ways that we can help patients and families cope with the stress and anxiety that comes along with food allergy. Um, And then my final year of work included a lot of collaboration to disseminate what the board had done. So we published a couple of peer-reviewed pieces where we set forth the research agenda that we recommended. We were able to present at a variety of different conferences, including some public health conferences, where food allergy wasn't really a topic of conversation, to try to argue that it should be considered a public health issue. And it was just an amazing experience to be able to draw on my professional resources and my personal experience and and feel like I was making a difference in a way I don't always feel like I get the chance to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How is that engaged scholarship where you're moving beyond an academic setting and and you're sharing those experiences, both personal and theoretically informed, with broader policymakers, publics. How is, how is that different from similar to uh, the sort of work that that doesn't necessarily engage those public stakeholders? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think one way that they're similar is I do find both ways of, of working and engaging with research to be rewarding. I think my work with FAIR was rewarding in 
a way that allowed me to see the possibility of work beyond the academy. I think one real difference that I enjoyed in, in working on the advisory board is that sometimes as scholars, even those of us who consider ourselves to be qualitative and interpretive scholars as I do, we still face this kind of post-positivist expectation that having a personal experience with an issue may damage your objectivity or bias you in some way. I still sometimes find myself making arguments to reviewers, for example, when I'm submitting something to a journal that my lens gives me a unique insight rather than bringing some kind of dangerous bias to my interpretation of my data. That was not an issue in the engaged work that I was doing. In Mm, fact, mm -hmm. I walked into that room with automatic credibility because I was a food allergy parent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sometimes (laughs) that, that works the other way around sometimes in the academy in ways that I think are starting to shift and change. Mm-hmm. But I still think we have a long way to go in that arena. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Think about some of the recommend- recommendations you were able to offer. Those derive directly from lived experience, right? Mm-hmm. A, f- a fear of needles and a fear of not being able to use that in, in an appropriate way in a matter of seconds in which it's needed. That can mean life or death. And so that's that recommendation, right, to pursue alternatives is grounded in the experiences of, of people as they narrate them for others. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it speaks to the, the possibilities of storytelling, right, that mm-hmm. the the allergists who happened to be sitting at the table I was at when, when the advisory board was having that discussion were equal parts surprised and also kind of realizing how much sense that made to just mm-hmm. instead of instead of continually trying to convince patients that the auto injector can't hurt that it's okay to give epinephrine and the the needle's not as bad as it seems to just flip things upside down and look for a totally new way of administering epinephrine. The auto-injector has been the standard for so long that it's easy to get entrenched in what we know instead of opening up new possibilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and honest, right? Um, mm-hmm. You can tell a child this isn't going to hurt, but it often does. Yeah. And so then you potentially erode trust, right? Rather than framing it as, yeah, it might hurt, but it will only hurt for a little while and that could save your life. Um, So that's an interesting quandary as well, a a communicative challenge. So um, as we wrap up our conversation, I want to save time to talk about the recent Food and Drug Administration's Mm -hmm. approval of the first ever treatment for potentially life-threatening peanut allergies. And that happened in January of this year, 2020. Is that correct? Yes. 
Okay. It seems like this represents a turning point in treatment. And you argue it was one made possible by family testimonies, by those family stories that were shared during the FDA hearings. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So this is a huge turning point for the food allergy community because prior to the approval of this drug, the, the standard of care was strict avoidance of an allergen and treatment with epinephrine in the event of an allergic reaction. So the drug that was approved is called palforzia. And it's a little tricky in the sense that palforzia is, in my opinion, not truly a drug. It is actually peanut powder that mm. is encapsulated, so it looks like a pill, that is an oral immunotherapy. So it's kind of like the equivalent of getting allergy shots, for example, to dogs or cats so that you build immunity over time. It's a mm -hmm. similar kind of concept, but it happens through an oral mechanism. And it's not meant to be curative. So the goal of, of this type of therapy for palforzia, um, palforzia, first I should say, is just for peanut allergy. There are therapies for other allergens in the works. But the goal mm -hmm. is that an accidental exposure would not be life-threatening. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily meant to allow free eating of whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. because it's peanut powder and not a newly developed drug, and because it's not necessarily curative, I think one of the hurdles that the food allergy community faced was convincing the FDA that quality of life improves from access to this therapy. And so that's where I see the critical role of storytelling. Um, before the approval, the Allergenic Products Committee held hearings in which families who had participated in clinical trials for palforzia came forward and told their stories. And these stories are publicly available. You can read them or view them online, and they are powerful. They mm -hmm. are stories of fear and lives that are limited prior to the advent of this therapy that allowed patients and families to breathe a little bit easier. And those stories were instrumental in demonstrating that, yes, quality of life can change even if a therapy is not a cure, which is the case in, in this particular situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. I have for years been, been trying to resist the metaphor of hope as a cure, um, and and my work has been in the realm of of pediatric oncology, right? Um, but I find that curative impulse to at once sustain our healthcare system, and we benefit from that. But it's also limited in terms of helping us all figure out in the midst of your body, the environment you live in, circumstances. How can you live well 
in the midst of yes. inescapable difficulties. So that's um, hopeful, <laughs> hopeful yeah. for me. Yeah. yeah, it's families being willing to share really devastating experiences of watching their children have these life-threatening reactions and then being able to say, this, this therapy allows us to feel like we don't have to fear that every single moment of our lives, that we can just decrease some of that anxiety, let that go a little bit, knowing that we have a little more freedom than we did before. And while it may sound trivial, that's incredibly important, especially in its current state, this is a drug that's uh, approved in the pediatric context. So to be able to say that for your children, hopefully we'll be able to say that for adult patients soon as well. But it's, it's incredibly life-changing for these families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is Jack and your family going to be able to benefit from this uh, treatment? You know, we've had that discussion many times. We are fortunate to have an allergist that we have a very good relationship with, for better or worse, all three of us in my family are patients oh. <laughs> of the same allergist for different allergic conditions. Um, and uh, our allergist, like I think many others, is very excited to have something to offer. Um, I should mention very briefly that prior to the approval of Palforzia, some allergy clinics have been offering the equivalent of an oral immunotherapy that was not FDA approved. And so a topic for a different day is there are all kinds of discourses that are bumping up against one another about whether you buy a drug or whether you can just eat peanut powder that doesn't have to be manufactured by a pharmaceutical company, um, mm -hmm. which is another complexity in the community. But we're, we're at a, a kind of tricky age with Jack where He's developing independence and his own decision-making capabilities. And so we're at a point where Brandon and I would not want to decide for him. We mm -hmm. would want Jack to also be enthusiastic about this therapy. Um, our other issue is that peanut is not Jack's only allergen. So he's also allergic to tree nuts. So for us, we would have to really think about the potential change in our quality of life. Mm -hmm. the, the therapy is daily. There are some restrictions surrounding activity and even doing things like taking a really hot shower um, within the space in which the, the drug is administered because some of those Physical activities or anything that kind of makes you hot could potentially trigger a reaction. So there, there are some, some daily routines that a family has to be willing to undertake to follow the therapy. And we're not sure yet Jack is at that place. Um, or if we want to wait until something might be available for multiple allergens rather than a single allergen, which is currently the case with Palforzia. I'm processing that Jack is 10. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> right. Um, 
I have I have a daughter who just finished her first year in in college and we are all connected. The the story I tell, Jen, the story I remember, and of course stories and memory making are bits and pieces, right, that are pulled together and shared and they're not static, they shift over time. But the story that I share now is as I remember it, Emma and I were were Jack's first non-family babysitters. You were. Right. (laughs) That very summer um, when he was born and um, 10 years later. So give that kid a hug for me. And thank you for sharing um, and giving us an entry into your family's journey and decision-making and, and the role of your son in, in helping to make those decisions and chart a path forward. It's beautiful. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been truly my pleasure. Mm. For listeners, thanks for joining us on this episode of Defining Moments. We've been talking with Dr. Jennifer Butte from IUPUI about her work on how we communicate in our everyday mundane conversations about food allergies and about the role of storytelling in in public advocacy work. You can read her article online published by Taylor and Francis in Health Communication. For your convenience, we've placed a link on our Facebook so that you can access that for free. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts Stitcher, Google Play. And if you're moved to do so, please uh, leave a, a recommendation about our podcast. As always, go in peace and, and love one another. Mm-hmm.